Uh, many of you guys know, uh, because if you go in my office, you'll see a bunch of cameras that kind of look like this up on the, um, I don't know what it is, on the top of my shelf there above my desk. And I, and I kind of collect these, these old cameras. And, and part of the reason I do that is because um, photography has always been a fascination of mine. I've never really had the time to pursue the hobby where I can become actually good at it. Um, but, I, but I'm still fascinated by photography. And the reason I grabbed this one, and this was a camera that was given to me recently. The reason I grabbed this one is because it looks just like my dad's camera that I used when I was in college. I mean, almost identical. And, uh, and, I, and I remember in college taking a photography course. And they gave you different things you had to take pictures of. Um, for example, one week the assignment might be a portrait. You take a picture of somebody. The next week it might be a, a nature scene. The next week it might be some sports picture, a stop action um, picture. And so uh, I took the photography class and it was a lot of fun. And unlike today where you just download the digital picture into your computer and then manipulate it from there, we had film in here and you had to go into a very dark room to take the film out and then develop it. And so it was a lot of fun developing that film and and not only the way you took the picture and what settings were you chose on your camera, but also the way you developed it is what determined how the picture would actually come out. And I remember my first assignment, which was a portrait. Take a picture of someone um, sitting somewhere. And I, and I took this portrait picture and I developed it. And, and I didn't get, I got an okay grade. I think I got a B on the picture. But I remember to this day exactly what my um, photography professor said. He said, there's not enough contrast in this picture. There wasn't enough contrast. There's too much gray. There's not enough distinction between your subject, who is the person you're taking the picture of, and the background. There's just not enough contrast in your picture. And when you take, it was all done black and white then. Not because, kids, there wasn't color when I was young. It's simply because that's the class, was black and white photography, all right? <clears throat> but in that black and white especially, you want to be able to really draw good, serious contrast in order for it to be a real artistic picture. The blacks have to really pop and the whites have to pop and there be good contrast. Now it seems as John is writing this letter to the churches of Asia Minor um, and as these false teachers have emerged and led a contingent of believers to leave the church, in the wake of that deception, the true believers who remained in the church were in desperate need of assurance. And how could they know what they believed was true? How could they know that they wouldn't fall away like these others had? Well, in order to help them have assurance, what John does in this letter is he draws contrasts. He gives a serious contrast between what is true and what is false. Light and dark. Love and hatred. He's drawing contrasts all throughout this book in order to give assurance to his readers. Contrast, as I've already mentioned, between true faith and false faith. Between the true believers who were holding to the apostles' teaching and the false believers who were following the teaching of the, the Gnostics or this early um, form of Gnosticism that was in the churches. Contrast between those who, who truly knew God and had a relationship with God and those who did not. Contrast between what is true and false. John is doing this as I already mentioned, to give the readers assurance, to help them know that their faith is real. That's why he gives us his thesis statement in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And so in today's text, 
we see John continuing to draw those serious contrasts. And even as Deemer prayed earlier, there are two groups in the world. There are two ways to live. There is a serious distinction, contrast, or there should be, between the people of God and the people of the world. So please stand with me now as we read these scriptures, this, these uh, verses of 1 John chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 11 and read down through verse 24. <clears throat> verse 11 through verse 24. This is God's infallible, inerrant word, and so that's why we stand in the honor of reading it. Verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments And do what pleases him. And this is his commandment. That we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ. And love one another. Just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments. Abides in God. And God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us. By the spirit. Whom he has given us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father we thank you for these words. We thank you for this stark contrast that John has been painting all throughout this little letter. So, Father, this morning I pray that you would convict us with your word, encourage us with your word. Lord, I pray that your word would not return void. If there be any hearts in here that are hardened hearts, hearts that belong to the world, that you would draw them out of this world. And bring them into the family of God. Father, I pray that you give me a mouth to speak. Give me a voice to speak. Help me to avoid error in my sermon this morning. And give all of us ears to hear your word as it's meant to be heard. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The message, the, the text this week begins with these words. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning. For... This is the message you have heard from the beginning. The word for is a conjunction, which means it's connecting what what we'll be studying this week to what we looked at already last week. And you remember in last week's message, Deemer preached a message entitled, Whose Child Are You? from verses 1 through 10 of chapter 3. And we were reminded in that message that there were only two families in this world. The family of Satan and the family of God. The seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman or the family of Christ. The family you are a part of is evidenced by, 
by what you do with sin. Do you practice lawlessness, rebellion, and transgression? Well then, you can be assured that you are not of the family of God. Instead, you are the family of the devil. But if God's seed abides in you, you can't go on sinning. Now, as Dima rightly pointed out, this doesn't mean sinless perfection, but rather an overall trajectory of growing in holiness, in Christ-likeness. After all, we should be growing in Christ-likeness because we should resemble our Father. If we are children of God, we should resemble our Father. We should look like our spiritual daddy. So last week's text ended with these words in verse 10. Now I want you to look back at verse 10 because it connects what we're going with what we're going to today. Verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Nor, and here's the connection to this week's passage, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So it's like, John's taking last week's message, last week's uh, uh, focus, and now he's going to to drive it in. He's going to narrow it down to the issue of love. He's narrowing what we saw last week down to make this observation. And so here's my first observation from the text this morning. The essential birthmark, okay, the, the, the evidence of the one who has been born of God, who's been born again, the essential birthmark of the child of God is Love. The essential birthmark of the child of God is love. Verse 11, for this is the message you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. So practicing righteousness is the evidence of being born of God, and that works itself out through the principal attribute of love. We should be loving one another. Love is this essential birthmark of the true Christian. But, but we need to expand upon that a little bit. And of course, John does. What is Christian love? How does it work itself out? What kind of love is John talking about here? And how is it practically lived out? In our day and age, the concept of, of love has been watered down to mushy sentimentalism at worst or some universal ideal to aim for at best. But everyone speaks of loving one another. That's the solution to all the world's ills is just, just love one another. But, but no one really wants to define what that love is. Everyone wants to talk about love, but no one wants to say, what does it actually mean to love? The Beatles told us in 1967 that all we need is love, right? Well, if you know that Beatles song, there's nothing particularly deep about their version of love. Even though John Lennon said that he wrote the song He wrote the song to change the world. It's basically a glorified Hallmark card. Okay, I'm sorry if I offend any Beatle fans in here. There's a kind of vague gushiness and warm feelings that anyone can have, but then there's Christian love. And John is specific here about what kind of love it is that marks the Christian. What kind of love it is that's Christian love. The love that that belongs to and flows out of those who are truly children of God. And the first thing we have to see is that it is familial love. What I mean by that is it's love for the brothers. The children of God are known for their love for one another. 1 John 3.11 again, for this is the message you've heard from the beginning, that we should love, 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 love. We start singing John Lennon's song. No, we should love 
one another, and he's speaking to the believers. Now look at verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life, meaning we've become Christians, because we what? We love the brothers. Now certainly, Christians, we are called to love everyone. That's what it means when we are commanded to love our neighbors. Love your neighbor as yourself is the second greatest commandment. We are to to love our neighbors. That includes everyone. Our Christians, brothers and sisters, and those outside of the faith. That's why we see in Galatians 6.10, Paul says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So we are to love everyone. But what John is arguing here is that the proof or the evidence of our being children of God is prime, isn't primarily seen in how we love those outside of the family of God, but it's primarily seen by how we love those inside the family of God. The true evidence that something spectacular has happened in our hearts is seen by how we love one another here. That's what John is getting at. It proves that we are kin. When we have this type of brotherly love, it proves that we are bonded together by something greater than blood. And that's what stands out to the world as a witness to the glory of God and the barrier-shattering power of faith. That's what stands out to the world. That's why John is, has been talking about two families, the family of God and the family of Satan. And the ultimate proof that we are in the family of God is that we have unbreakable, otherworldly love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. This brotherly love has been the essential element of the gospel message from the very beginning, according to John. John, again, is reminding his readers that what he has been teaching them is what they have heard from the beginning. It hasn't changed. It's steadfast. It's the gospel message that they had received when he first shared the the gospel with them. John is urging his readers not to be swayed by by new revelations and, and secret knowledge that the Gnostics like to proclaim. But instead, they were to stand on the age-old revelation of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And those who had embraced that gospel message were brought into the family of God and were therefore to have a deep, unbreakable, familial love that demonstrated the divine work of God who had united them to one another through their union with the Son. When we are united to Christ as believers, we are also united to a people. God's not just about saving individuals. He's saving a people for himself. And he's uniting all of us to his son. So the love we demonstrate to one another reflects the love we have for the son. If we have a union with Christ, then we have union with one another. And it should be demonstrated in the way we treat one another, the way we love one another. Now to drive home the distinction between the two families... John takes us back to a familiar Old Testament story um, about two brothers, but brothers who ultimately proved to be in two different families. And the story, of course, is the story of Cain and Abel. Verse 12, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one. So there is a family lineage that Cain is a part of. By the way, a lot of medieval scholars believe that this text teaches or taught that um, Cain was the physical offspring of the serpent and Eve. That's absolute nonsense. Okay, so if you hear anybody teaching that, that's absolute nonsense. What we see here is the same thing we see all throughout 
the Old Testament and the New Testament, namely that family lineage isn't primarily about DNA, it's about faith. And we see it here in the story of Cain and Abel as well. And I think it's the key to understanding the whole story of the Bible. So Cain was of the evil one, the family of Satan, and he murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Now this is interesting. John is saying that Cain murdered because his own deeds were evil. He was already evil. He didn't become evil by murdering his brother Abel. He hated and murdered because it was in his nature already to do evil. That's what we read in Genesis 4. That his offering was not accepted, but Abel's was. So just as Cain was in his flesh evil, his brother was by faith righteous. And so we read in Hebrews eleven four, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. Abel was of the family of faith, the family of God. Faith in the promised seed of the woman, the deliverer who would come. Faith that acknowledged sin, repented of sin. Faith that knew that a blood sacrifice was needed in order to atone for sin. But Cain was of a different family. The family of the serpent remaining in his sin. And in his sinful state, he rebelled against God's word. He didn't look in faith to the salvation that God had promised He pridefully refused to offer acceptable worship and sacrifices to God. And when his sacrifice was rejected, the evil that was already in his heart overflowed with covetousness, jealousy, anger, hatred, and then murder. It's not that Cain, by murdering his brother, became a child of the devil. But that being a child of the devil, the evil intentions of his heart culminated with the murder of his brother. And what pushed his anger over the top into outright physical murder. It was seeing his brother's righteousness. And that led him to hate and to kill Abel. He hated the righteousness of Abel. Righteous, God-honoring acts draw hatred from those who are not part of the family of God. That's why John says and goes on to say in verse 13, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. This shouldn't surprise you that the world hates you. The story of Cain and Abel should remind us and cause us not to be surprised when the world hates us when we do righteous things, especially when we stand for righteous things. I saw a clip this week, and again, as I, as I make these kind of mentions, I'm not making political endorsements, okay? I saw a clip this week where Mike Huckabee was on The View. That alone should cause you to see that this is, uh, this is like combustible, all right? He was on The View, and he was explaining, or they were actually getting on to him because he called the children of abortion, the children that were aborted, he called them victims. And the people on The View didn't like the fact that he called these aborted children victims. And they got mad at him. And despite how cordial he was trying to be as he explained it, the hosts were biting back with venomous speech and ridicule. Friends, no matter how patient and kind we might try to be as we stand for righteousness, the world hates the works of God. That's why I get so frustrated when I hear evangelical leaders getting wishy-washy about the truth, trying to be God's PR agent. God doesn't need a PR agent. We are to stand for the truth. Yes, we must do so compassionately, winsomely, wisely, even strategically. But we also must know that the line of the serpent will always hate and lash out at the line of Jesus. 
Because the lion of the serpent hates righteousness. The lion of the serpent wants to suppress the truth. Darkness cannot tolerate light. John 3, 19, Jesus says this himself. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So don't spend, don't expend too much energy trying to convince the darkness to embrace the light. Instead, we should live in such a way that we shine the light into the darkness. And in this case, in today's text, we do so by how we love one another. The way we love one another becomes a beacon of light in a dark world. Verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Loving one another within the body of Christ is one of the strongest witnesses we can have. Remember Jesus' words in John chapter 17, verse 21, and then also in verse 23, where he prays for our unity. And what, is he, what was his motive for praying for our unity? So that the world may believe. So that the onlooking world may believe. Believe that God truly had sent him. Something otherworldly had happened here. And we read John's words, as we read John's words here in 1 John 3, it reminds us, it, it, we can't help but have our mind taken back to Jesus' words in John 13, after he has washed his apostles' feet, he says this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And listen to verse 35. By this, by what? The love you have for one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The world takes notice of what we believe and who we believe in when it sees otherworldly, barrier-breaking, stereotype-shattering, unconditional love that Christians have for one another. And John says if we don't have that type of love, well, then we may not be in the family. Verse 14, whoever does not love, and that's talking about loving the brothers, abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So John is now taking the physical act of murder that most of his listeners then and most of us today, I'm assuming, have not committed. But he expands it, just as Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount, to include sins of the heart, hatred that we would have towards our brothers. Matthew 5, 21, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the fires of hell. The type of attitude where one has anger towards and animosity towards his brother in Christ is contrary to true Christian brotherhood. And that's why Jesus even goes on to say, if we've got that in our heart, you cannot even worship right. 
Because in verse 23 of that same passage in Matthew 5, he says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Hatred and anger toward our brothers is spiritual violence. It's spiritual murder. Think about it. Murder... Murder is wanting to rid yourself of someone else. That's what murder is. And while we might not stoop to physical violence to make that happen, we do it in other spiritually murderous ways. We avoid them. We ignore them. We give them the silent treatment. We exclude them. We insult them. All in an attempt to rid ourselves of that person that we just don't like. That person that rubs me the wrong way. Friends, that is hatred. It is spiritual violence to want to rid yourself of a brother in Christ. Spiritual violence. This, by the way, and I'm going to go a little bit of a, a parenthetical comment here. This, by the way... Is why in Malachi 2.16, the Lord says that a man who divorces his wife covers his garment in violence. Divorce is murder. It's the desire to rid yourself of another person. In this case, the one you have a covenant with, a marriage covenant with. So too, in the church, we cannot claim to be children of God who have a covenant with one another while practicing spiritual violence against those who are part of our family. If we do that regularly, if we practice that way, we are not of the family of Abel, but instead we are of the family of Cain. So practically that affects how we live here and now within this covenant community. But also it affects how we treat others in general. Now I have a whole lot more to say here This could have been like a four-part sermon. I'm going to save some of it because John begins to say almost the same things again in in, in 1 John 4, beginning in verse 7. So I'll save it for a couple of weeks from now or maybe next week, however it plays out. But not only does it affect how we treat one another here within this covenant body, but how we treat Christians in general. I always want to be very careful before criticizing others who claim to be Christians. Now we are to watch out for wolves And false teachings, and there are many false teachers out there, and there's many false believers out there. And that's why John has written this letter to help us identify who the false teachers and false believers are. But we also must take much care not to shoot our criticism and judgment out so wide that we take out several sheep while we're aiming for the wolf. We've really got to be careful. Let us be on guard, but let us also know that wolves and false believers eventually show themselves. That's what happened in Asia Minor. The Gnostic false teachers had led people to separate from the church. And that very act of separation, that act of trying to rid themselves of the rest of those that they claimed to be brothers with, that very act of ridding themselves from the other Christians was evidence that they were false believers was evidence that they were murderous people, part of the line of Cain. I don't think you'll ever leave a church again without thinking about this text. 
So in Asia Minor, we see that there have been some that have already exposed themselves as not being part of the family of God. We also see this in, in 3 John chapter, uh, verse 9. There's no, there's no chapters in, in 3 John. I think all these letters were kind of a group of letters that, that John sent to the church. I think they're all going to the same group of people. And so we read in, in, in 3 John, beginning in verse 9, John says this, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. What was going on in Third John is he's encouraging the believers to support these traveling missionaries that were going around. And there was this dude named Diotrephes in one of the churches of Asia Minor who was saying, no, we're not going to help them. Matter of fact, if you want to help them, I'm going to put you out of the church. Apparently he was in a position of authority. But he was practicing spiritual murder with his abuse of authority. Diotrephes was a false teacher. He was a spiritual murderer. And his lack of love for the brothers was evidence that he was not part of the family of God. His lack of sacrificial love to care for the visiting missionaries further proved that status. And that's what we see next. The next part of this love is simply this. It's sacrificial love. Sacrificial love. 1 John three sixteen. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So, so John now, he shifts from the negative example of Cain, who was the embodiment of hate, to the positive example of Jesus, who, of course, is the embodiment, the full embodiment of love. Cain took a life. Jesus gave his life. Now we know from other things that John has said, both he'll say in 1 John and has already said in 1 John, but also in the gospel, that that Jesus' death on the cross is not merely an example for us to follow. So don't don't read this text and say, well, I guess Jesus' death is just some example we're supposed to follow. John believes in the substitutionary death of Christ to satisfy the wrath of God for his people. But at the same time, it was also an example. It was the full display of God's love. So we are to follow Christ, we are to be like him, and then we are to have sacrificial love for our brothers. I heard a story this week on on NPR of a a ship, a Navy ship that's being, um, a brand new Navy ship, a destroyer that's being built. It's being named the USS Rafael Peralta. Rafael Peralta was a a Mexican-American who was born in Mexico, but he became a citizen and went to fight for our country in Iraq in 2004. And during one of the heaviest times of war and battle that was going on in 2004, his group were entering a house trying to clear this house, and he got shot. And as he got shot, he fell to the ground, but he got out of the way so the rest of his brothers um, could, could continue to engage the enemy. But one of the enemies threw a grenade, and it came over to where his, his brothers were, and he reached out, he crawled, he was already bleeding and hurt. He reached over and crawled and grabbed that grenade and brought it into his stomach and, and cradled it like a baby and took the blast and he died instantly for the sake of his brothers. And this ship now, this destroyer is being named after him. Now, that's a quite graphic story. And you might be thinking, okay, well, I guess if the situation were bad enough, I guess I could do that. I guess I could jump on a grenade perhaps. But what John wants to do, he wants to take sacrificial love here in this passage to a whole new level for us. You see, physically putting your life on the line is good, but practically we are called to give up our lives in a much more concrete way. 
Verse 17. Now he's going to explain sacrificial love. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Friends, sacrificial love isn't just getting in the way of fire or grenade or, 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 or physically laying you down your life to protect the others in the church or something along those lines. That's great. But the sacrificial love that's really hard is to let go of our stuff in the here and now when there is no grenade that's about to blow us up. Let go of our stuff to minister to others. Letting go of our stuff for the sake of our family. Our willingness to hold on to worldly goods loosely for the sake of God's people is strong evidence of our family relationship. And it is strong witness to the world that something special exists within the people of God. That's what everyone, the onlooking world in Jerusalem, when the church was first started, saw these things. So we read in Acts chapter 2, verse 44, all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any who had need. And then we read later in verse 32 of Acts 4. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that anything, any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. That's powerful community right there. John goes on in verse 18. He says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed. And in truth. In other words, don't let your love be Beatles like, mushy sentimentalism. Let it actually put on flesh by carrying it out in practical ways, practical deeds. Let us love truly, is what John is saying here. True acts of love involve truly meeting the needs of one another. James 2 15. The brother of our Lord says this, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed or lacking in daily food, and one of you says, says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? What good is that? Now I'm going to say this carefully because I certainly want us praying for one another, but I'm afraid that the phrase, you know, I'll pray for you in that situation, is one of the biggest cop-outs in the church. Someone comes to you with their knees, maybe emotional, maybe physical, and they're pouring out their heart to you. You know what, brother? I'll be praying for you. And you have the means to help meet those needs, whatever it might be, through counseling them, through encouraging them, through actually giving of your, your, your physical goods to help them out, and you go along your way without doing it. You're doing exactly what James talks about here. Now, certainly we are to pray for one another. That's important. You cannot have gospel community without gospel-centered prayer for one another. And I encourage you to systematically pray for every member of this church body. Figure out a way to do it. If you have to use a directory or you want to use some other means, pray for this body. But friends, what good is faith if you have the means to help your brother and you withhold it? The children of God are marked by sacrificial love, not mere words. Now the next part of the text is kind of odd. Verses 19 to 22, it may seem like John is diverging from the topic here. 
It's a difficult passage to interpret. Uh, And then he seems to return to the topic in verses 23 through 24. So it seems like he takes, matter of fact, in some commentaries or even in some outlines of this book, you'll you'll even call this a digression by John. John takes a a little pause from what he's talking about to digress, talk about something else. Well, let me read it to you, and I'll explain to you why I do not think that's the case. 1 John 3, beginning in verse 19. By this we know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and, we, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what, he, what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Now, verses 19 through 22 is a difficult section I've already mentioned to interpret. Traditionally, there's been two interpretations. Number one... It's interpreted in a positive way. And it, it interprets our hearts as being basically the same thing as our consciences. So if our hearts, meaning our overly sensitive consciences, condemn us, well, then God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything, and, and we can rest in his forgiveness and in the advocate we have before the Father who is Jesus Christ. Well, certainly that's true. But is that what John is saying here? They would go on to say, that if our heart doesn't condemn us, then we're even better, and we have even greater confidence before God. So that's one way to interpret it. That would be the positive way. The negative way of interpreting it would be this. If our hearts, this time our guilty conscience, condemns us, then God is greater and all-knowing and even more rigorous in his judgment than we are. And so we should be in fear of that condemnation. But if our hearts do not condemn us, well, then it's good. And we can confidently go to the Lord in prayer. The problem with both of these interpretations is that they are treated as digressions from John's main line of thought and don't fit with what he is saying and we know that, um, that John can't be digressing. He can't be changing topics here because in verse 19, it begins with this phrase, by this we shall know, which is grammatically connected to what went before it. It's a phrase used to point us forward by carrying and applying what was just said. So we also see uh, in verses 19 through 22, I think we should see that there is a logical continuous thought rather than some sort of odd digression or parenthetical statement. Secondly, I want us to think about the word heart. It's rarely synonymous in the scriptures with conscience. There is a word in the Greek for conscience. In order to read the text as it's traditionally been understood, either one of those two ways I just mentioned, you have to understand the heart to be the conscience. And that's, um, add to that the fact that in verse 17, John has already used the word heart and he, we need to see that the way he's using the word heart in verse 17 is the way he's continuing to use it in verses 19 through 22. Finally, in verse 19, he says this. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. That word, reassure, is never translated that way in any of the other 52 usages of that word in the New Testament. It always means in every other context, persuade or convince. So it's not about reassurance. It's about persuading our heart. We're not trying to reassure our heart. We're trying to convince our heart of something. So, based upon that textual evidence and the grammatical structure, I'm persuaded to go along with a view that Dr. Colin Cruz, and he has a great um, commentary on 1 John, as well as some other people share, although it's the minority view. And that would be that, that when John here says, by this we shall know that we are of the truth, he is reinforcing his exhortation for his readers not to close off their hearts towards fellow believers in need. 
and that by helping their brothers, they can reassure or convince or persuade their hearts before God. The way we can, we can convince our hearts is that we are not closing them off to our brothers. And what it is that they are to convince their hearts of, specifically, they are to convince their hearts to not succumb to the fleshly temptation not to help their brothers in need. You remember that passage we read earlier in the, in the, in the service from Deuteronomy chapter 15 where God was warning them, don't give in to the temptation not to help your brother in need. So when he says in verse 20, for whenever our heart condemns us, what he's saying is that whenever our heart objects to the legitimate needs that we are called to meet, whenever our heart objects to and reasons against helping our brothers, we must remember that God is greater than our heart. He knows everything. God knows our motives. God knows our hearts. God knows everything. And our hearts may convince us that we should hold on to our stuff, but we, have, we cannot have hearts that are closed off to God's people. God knows the truth, and that should motivate us. We should not want to have hearts that are closed off, as verse 17 warns us. But instead, we want to have hearts, that's in verse 21, that do not condemn us. Meaning we have hearts that are generous, that are not holding back, that are holding on to our stuff loosely, that are continually seeking to meet the needs of God's people. Then we can have confidence that we're part of the people of God when we're that kind of person. We have confidence before God in verse 21. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Do you see what's happening here? When we have generous, open hearts, we have powerful prayer lives. Isn't that what we see in James chapter 4? Second half of verse 2. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. The type of prayer life that the Lord loves to answer is a prayer life that's seeking the good of others. That's seeking the blessing of others. And when we're asking in that sort of way, we're asking according to God's will. We're asking in a way that we can love our brothers. And that's the kind of prayer life God loves to bless. And I think that's what John's talking about here. Weak prayer lives are self-focused Powerful prayer lives are filled with prayers that are according to his will, that are others-focused, that are mainly brothers-focused. God will answer your prayers and give you what you ask for when your motive is to bless the community of faith and serve through sacrificial generosity. That's the essence of obeying Jesus' command according to John, verse 23. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Surely as the Apostle John wrote these words, he was harking back, he was remembering back that passage that Demer read earlier in John chapter 15, verse 12. I'll just read a couple of those verses. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. And you'll also remember that passage, there's two places where Jesus talks about answering prayer in that passage. It's all connected with whether or not we're sacrificing ourselves for others. Let me move on. The essential birthmark of the child of God is love, familial love, sacrificial love, and supernatural love. And I simply want to finish with how John finishes it. And what I mean by this supernatural love, it is a love from God, enabled by God, sustained by God through his Holy Spirit. Verse 24, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know he abides in us by the spirit whom he 
has given us. I've intentionally and with much difficulty avoided using the word supernatural until I got to this point. But that's what all this is, this type of love that's attractive to the world, this type of community that blows people's minds is a supernatural love. Love that overcomes economic barriers, racial barriers, social barriers, sin barriers. It's not a love that we can manufacture. It comes from God. It comes from our abiding in God and his abiding in us. It comes from his word abiding in us. It is supernatural. It is enabled and sustained by the Holy Spirit. It's supernatural in that it flows from our supernatural union we have with Christ and therefore what we have with one another. Friends, the church is a supernatural community. It has to be. If we rely on natural affections for one another, we're doomed. But if we rely on and pray for and work toward supernatural affections for one another, we will thrive. 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 12. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in your Sunday school numbers, in your attendance. No. Here's the kind of church growth I want. Verse 12, 1 Thessalonians 3. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. Love for one another, loving the brothers, and that love just pours out of the church onto our community. That's what I want to see here. And guess what? It can't be manufactured by any of us. It's a spiritual work. So the Spirit supernaturally joins us to God's family. We read that in Romans 8, 14 through 16. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So there's a supernatural adoption into God's family. But the Spirit also supernaturally joins us to one another. Ephesians 4, verse 1. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. That's the community of God. That's the family of God. Do you have that kind of love? If so, then then be assured you are part of the family of God. Do you love the brothers? Or do you find yourself constantly wanting to be away from them? Do you love these people? Or do you find yourself saying that? I just dread seeing those people on Sunday. Let me reword it another way. Are you looking forward to the family reunion every Sunday or are you a murderer? This is the community of God. It is a supernatural community. And friends, our eternal destiny hangs on how we answer some of those questions. Do we really belong to the people of God? So let me conclude simply by saying you you see these contrasts. John's been drawing them stark contrast: Love, light, and life. Hate, darkness, and death. The contrast between the two families couldn't be any greater. My question for you is which family do you belong to this morning? Let's pray.
Father, I praise you and thank you that I believe most of those in this room, I hope most of those in this room, if not all of those in this room, belong to your family. I praise you and thank you, Lord, for the love we see at Harbin's. But God, we have so far to go to be that Ephesians 4 type of church. So God, help us. Help us to demonstrate our our lineage. Help us to demonstrate who our, our spiritual father is by the way we love one another. And Lord, I pray and I beg you, Lord, that that love that we have towards one another will be contagious and that the world will see the love we have here for one another and see that something special is going on there, not in us, but that it's you and that you get all the glory. Let them see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Lord, I pray that for our church. Lord, would there be any here who are not part of that family? They don't, they don't have that union with Christ, so they don't have that union with the rest of the believers. I pray, Father, that you'd convict them of their sin. Turn them to your son, Jesus. The only means by which their sin can be dealt with. The only way their sin can be paid for apart from an eternity in hell. So God, I pray that. I pray, Lord, you would convict us of the ways we fall short of loving the brothers like we should. And every one of us in here falls short in some way. We all need to grow. We all need to, to grow in our love for one another and for all. So I pray, 1 Thessalonians 3.12, over this church body. Make us people who love one another. Lord, if we don't add another single person to this church, but we're loving each other better in six months from now, then glory be to God you're doing a work in this place. So God, we thank you and we praise you for the work you are doing. And help us, Lord, forgive us of our sin. Forgive us of falling so short. Convict us and by your spirit enable us to be the people you want us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.